Good morning, church. Not only did we hit the goal, you doubled the goal. So thank you very much. Also want to say good morning to Ketchikan, Alaska. Thank you for tuning in, as well as Anna Cortez, Washington. Thank you for tuning in. And Escondido, California. Thank you for tuning in. You're almost within driving distance. You're pretty, <laughs> pretty close there. But uh, good morning to all of you, and uh, we've had a uh, pretty eventful weekend for the Ambrose family. Uh, our youngest was uh, married uh, this weekend, and so, yep. And uh, the cool thing, you know, whenever you have your kids get married, or you get married actually, um, you know, there's that hope that the relationship will remain stable. Like I said before, it's easy to get married. It takes a little work to stay married. Um, but, you know, for us, and uh, now, now my daughter-in-law, Kinsey, um, there's a sense of confidence uh, because they've been dating for three and a half years. So, you know, it's a long season, uh, going through all the seasons of, of, of life, um, of a year, and working through disagreements and come back together and getting to know each other's personality type, um, really uh, testing the compatibility um, to where, you know, they're not walking the aisle, uh, cringing, going, I hope this works out. They have a smile on their face, a confidence um, on their wedding day and their future together. And the more I think about that, the more I think, the more we understand one another, the more we know about each other's personality types, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether the more successful our relationships will be, right? The more confident we can be in our relationships. If you meet somebody and two weeks later you're getting married, you don't know. You're not even good friends, let alone husband and wife. But over time, those kind of things pan out. Now, I'm going to make a leap here, but maybe it's a gauged leap. They assume that everybody here, most of you here or online, are here to deepen your relationship with Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why you worship. That's why you listen to God's word. But one way also to deepen your relationship with Jesus, you can have time, if you got time and grade, that's gonna help, um, but also to understand more about who Jesus is. To keep it in the example, his personality type, or the, how the Bible would describe it, attributes of who Jesus is. And the more we understand that, the more confident we can be in our relationship with him, the more depth that we can have, and those kinds of things. And so I've entitled this morning's message, Personality Type, and we're going to understand the attributes of Jesus in a little series. I started part one today by looking at John chapter 5, verse 19 to 23. And my hope is that this will deepen your walk with the Lord. This will give you more confidence, get more, a better understanding of who your Lord and Savior is so you know how to interact with him better. You know how to rely and walk by faith with him better. Um, the context is super interesting because of all the Gospels. Uh, our context this morning is one that was spoken by Jesus, user claims, about himself. So 
you know, a lot, we read a lot of claims that are written by authors about Jesus in the New Testament, but this is one that's the clearest and most direct. Now, his conversation is with some uh, hostile religious leaders. If you remember last week, remember Jesus healed that man by the pools? Remember that? Yeah, nod and we'll keep moving. Um, and remember, and, and, and the religious leaders got all tweaked because what happened? The healing was on the Sabbath. And we talked about the strategy of that, that Jesus was trying to expose their hypocrisy or in terms of context, their dead religion, right? So by way of context, going back a verse, um, Jesus answered them when they were confronting the issue and said, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God, and blasphemy as a capital crime back then. So this is the interaction that's going on. And so when we pick it up, Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, and look what he says. He says to them, truly, truly, that means this is really important, by the way, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord referring to himself, but only that he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likely, likewise. So Jesus is claiming to be on the same page as the father, effectively. He's unified with the father. He's empowered by the father. And remember their claim was Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So if they're calling out Jesus and saying, you sinned by healing on the Sabbath, he's basically saying, yeah, I healed on the Sabbath, but if I sinned, so did the Father, because we're on the same page. But he goes on. He says, for the Father loves the Son, referring to himself, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. In other words, you think this, this healing of the man was a big deal, it's gonna get better. And here, here's the deal, the father loves the son. The tense of that word love is continues to love the son. Again, highlighting the intimacy, the unity, the connectedness. He goes on, verse 21. For as the father raises the dead, look at this. As the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. That's next level. Now. Context, timeline, Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead. Lazarus, that whole thing hasn't happened yet. But he's saying that the father raises the dead and so also he gives that to the son. So, is he referring to physical resurrection that'll happen later in his ministry? Maybe. Is he referring to spiritual resurrection that people will experience by being born again by the spirit of God? Maybe but it's a lofty claim. Why? Because of what the Jews believed. Now, the Jews, if you read context of Jewish history, the religious leaders felt that God held three keys. Three keys, uh, they called them the great keys. And the first great key was that God can open and does open the heavens. It comes from Deuteronomy 28, 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and bless all the work of your hands. That's the first great key. The second great key is God will open the womb of a woman. Text comes from Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. 
Here's the application. The third great key was God holds or opens the grave and raises the dead. Ezekiel 37, 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord, whom I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. So what is happening? Jesus is claiming that he holds one of the great keys of God. He's elevating himself with God. So he's no minor league prophet. He's not your everyday rabbi. And he's not even a powerful instrument being used by God. Nope. He is himself on par with God, or as I put it, the first attribute in understanding about Jesus, he is equal to God. He's equal to God. You're talking personality types, that's why we say Jesus is God. Now, we talked about this early on in John chapter one. John started his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Later on, verse 14, word became flesh, that's Christmas, and dwelt among us, okay? So that claim was by who though? The apostle John. This one's by Jesus himself. Self-proclaiming equality with God. In fact, later on in, in John chapter 10, verse 13, he says, I and the Father are one. And you know what they did after that? Picked up stones to stone him because of the proclamation. So this has to do with the deity of Christ. And we've explored this before, but there it is again. I watched a Netflix series not too long ago. I'm not recommending the series, it's kind of creepy. Um, but it was called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. And it was, it's, it's, it's kind of a documentary basically about a really fundamental wing of the Mormon church, cultic, and their leader, uh, Warren Jeffs. Now, he claimed to be God, Christ incarnate, whatever term you want to use. And so his followers um, believed that. He said he would never die, and so his, father, or his followers believed that. If you had a child, all the young children had to go to Warren and if they wanted to marry somebody, they'd had to get his permission. Creepy part is, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds would come to him, an 80-year-old man, and say, I'd like to marry Jimmy down, you know, down the block, and he'd say, nah, you're gonna marry me. So 80-year-old man with probably 25 wives, all teens, Super creepy, so I'm not recommending it. Like, it's not gonna be like, this is great, uplifting, no, no, so don't do that. But here's my point, why do I bring this up? Anybody can claim to be God. I could do that. And you're gonna go, okay, why should I believe you? That would be the rational thing, prove it. That's why the miracles of the New Testament are so important. The miracles, and they get misinterpreted. The miracles weren't because Jesus wanted to eradicate sickness on the planet so he's going around and healing people. If so, he blew it. 
When he said, it is finished on the cross, there was a lot more sick people that needed to be healed. He should be cleaning out hospitals if that was the goal, but that wasn't the goal. His goal to feed 5,000 people wasn't to eradicate hunger and to make sure that now everybody's supplied with food. If that was the goal, there's still a bunch of hungry people when he left. What was the goal? Those miracles were to validate his message. These kind of claims. Because you're saying this, but prove it. Oh, that Lazarus raised from the dead. Oh, you fed 5,000. Oh, you healed a leper. Oh, you healed a lame man. I mean, go on and on and on, right? Why should I believe you? That's why. Oh, okay, that's why the resurrection is so important. Because if you got a dead Jesus, you got a dead prophet. If you got a dead prophet, get in line. So this truth prevents us from dumbing down Jesus. In other words, he's not just a wise prophet or a teacher. He won't let you dumb him down that way, because look at his claims. He, he, he's not gonna just be another of voice in the spiritual arsenal of leaders over millennia. He won't let you do that. People try. Oh, I follow this person, that rabbi, that you know, sage, that imam, that whatever, and Jesus, and we'll throw him in. Well, he, he doesn't let you. This isn't John not letting you. This is Jesus himself. And so the implications are that you don't need anything more than Jesus. Because why would you need anything more if this is God incarnate? Now, are there tensions with that perspective? 100%. Because our mind can only get to a certain place in the logic. 100% God, 100% man. You've heard of that, right? Even that's a mind blower because that's 200%. Go 50-50. No, you can't though. And what do you mean 100% God? He's limited to a body. How can he be 100% God and be limited to a body? Well, he laid aside his attributes. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? And you, you start going, oh, I'm supposed to believe that, but logically I kind of struggle. There's a tension there. I can only go so far. Same with the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What? Three gods? No, one. One? How do you go three and one? Well, you just go three and one. Yeah, but the three-headed monster, what? what? No, one essence, but individual. What? I'm supposed to believe that, but I, it's really hard. And then people label and say, oh, look at the Christians. You know, they just believe Jesus is God. <laughs> How is that possible? And they believe in this three in one thing. How is that possible? Makes no sense. Remember my dog theology. Remember? Yeah, some of you? Good. No nodding, okay. Um, I could make it cat theology too, that, that will work. Um, no matter what I do, because I don't have a dog, I've had dogs, so I'll make it cat. No matter what I do to convince my cat that artwork is beautiful, he won't get it. Doesn't matter. If I, no matter what I can do to convince him music is wonderful, he won't get it. 
So I can put Monet's in front of him. I can put Rembrandt's in front of him. And if I lay him on the ground, he'll probably just sit on it like they sit on all flat pieces and maybe even start doing that, right? Tearing it up. He won't get the value. Does that mean it doesn't have value? No. Does that mean that there is no beauty in music or artwork? No. It just means that him, he's limited in his catness, that he can't go beyond his perspective because he's not human. The only thing that would make him to be able to do that is to be human, and he's not. So he's going to be limited. But it doesn't mean that stuff isn't true. Same with God. The idea that our humanness, we're limited in being able to understand the deity of Christ, to be able to understand the Trinity, doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we're limited in our humanness. For us to fully understand, we would have to be what? God. And you're not God. You're a creation from God. So it's not a cop-out to say, well, I'm just supposed to believe it even though I don't understand it. No, it's a proclamation of who you are before God. You're created, not the creator. That make sense? Well, that's the cat theology. First service got the dog theology. <laughs> so if there's disagreements in small group this week, just kind of blend them together. We could make it all kinds of theology. It doesn't matter. <sighs> all right. He's equal to God. It's an attribute, the deity of Christ. But Jesus doesn't slow down. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So now we're not talking about resurrection life, we're talking about judgment. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is not backing off. He's not mellowing out the, the conversation. He's double downing. And especially for the Jews, because again, when you, when you look through the Old Testament, a lot of times Christians will look through the Old Testament and they'll struggle because they'll feel like, gosh, when I look at the Old Testament, it seems like a different God because there's what? Judgment, right? And judgment, whether it's Noah, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, there's judgment that takes place. And so the Jews' perspective was judgment is reserved for only God. And you do a quick little summary, and we don't have time for it, but Isaiah 33, 22 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Psalm 75, 7, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Psalm 98, 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equality or equity. And so He's, God is judge, the judge, ultimately, and that judgment now has been handed over to the Son, the text says. Now, this may be a shift for you as Christians on how you picture Jesus or his attributes, because when we think of Jesus, we think of Christmas, and when we think of Jesus, we think of the New Testament, and when we think of Jesus, we think of a suffering, suffering servant, one that, one that was treated terribly, but just took it. One that was mocked, one that was ridiculed, but just took it. We picture a loving, merciful, benevolent savior, which is all true. 
But the story's not over. The story's not over. There's more to come. That's history. That's a side of the coin. But the other side of the coin, when it comes to understanding an attribute about Jesus, is he is our final judge. He's our final judge. We will all have to answer to Jesus for what we've done with the cross, what we've done with our life. Now, if you read through the Bible, you've got multiple judgments. Paul talks about one in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. That's a Christian judgment. That was written to a church in Corinth, and he said, all will have to stand before God, Christ, and be judged. So we don't think about that a lot in terms of our life. We just picture get out of jail cards, free the cross. So when I have to stand before God, I'll go across and go, sweet, let's go on in. Bingo. I know the guy in high places. There'll be a judgment. We'll all be accountable for how we lived out our Christian faith, not for heaven and hell, but for eternity, because they're talking about rewards in heaven, those kinds of things. So there's that part. Then you got great white throne judgment, Revelation 22:12. behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is Jesus, by the way. So this is the Matthew 25 kind of judgment. Separate the sheets from the goats, heaven, hell, cross, no cross. So you got multiple judgments, but here's the deal. Jesus is involved in them all. And it got handed over to him by the Father. Now, this can be a little bit of a, hmm, I don't know if I like that part. I like the suffering Savior merciful part. The judge part. I don't know if I like that. But that's always as it relates to us. Have you noticed that? Because movies like, remember Clint Eastwood? Go ahead, make my day. Remember that? He's looking at the guy you hate his guts because he's been evil the whole movie. And you can't wait for him. Just make his day. Boom, pop him, get him over with. Rambo, right? Bruce Willis was involved in all those other movies. You'd love it when the bad guy in the end gets justice. It's in our constitution of who we are. That's why if we see something on TV and somebody's let go and they did something brutal, you're like, that's not fair. It's not right. But when it comes to us, fair and right, we kind of hope that goes out the door. So, he's our final judge. Now this may, like I say, shift for you, give you a different picture, and probably it's hard to know the picture because we don't really have it recorded in the New Testament. We have the suffering Savior. But the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the great white throne, that's Jesus. That's the second coming. So what does this do for us? Well, hopefully it installs a little bit of fear when it comes to the Lord. I think it's healthy. And I think if anything, as Christians, we've kind of pushed that away. 
Fear of the father, kind of a weird way, because we see him in the Old Testament. Well, that's been handed off. Kind of shapes how we even view our non-Christian friends. Wow. Stand before Jesus. I'm a little nervous for you. (laughs) Maybe it'll shape the way we pray. Maybe it'll shape the way we even come to the Lord in prayer. Rather than just kind of our buddy and there to help us out and all that kind of stuff, a little bit of deference. Rather than blowing him off, including him. I don't know. I don't know what that does for you, but when I was reading through these two, I thought, okay, he's equal to God. Yeah, Christians for the most part, that's part of the company line, so to speak, the deity of Christ. We don't really get it fully, but we embrace it. But he's my final judge? Huh, I really thought about that a whole lot. And how should that impact my life today? Sober me up a little bit. Me and my wife, we, uh, we talk a lot about personality types. And, and I'll tell you the reason. And we've done every test. You know, Taylor Johnson, Myers-Briggs, Core Strengths, Disc Test, Enneagram. Keep going. And, you know, the results are sometimes you're this color, sometimes you're this number or whatever. Um, and for us, it's been super helpful. And there's consistency. So usually if you're over here and you're a certain number, it's not crazy that you're over here in a red green because they equate to kind of the same thing. Some deal with your core motives, other deals with your personality types or whatever. But what it does is it, it develops, the more, again, it's, it's back to understanding. The more you can understand about a person, the more you know where they're coming from, why they're coming from that place, and have compassion, and go to deeper levels of intimacy, versus why are you so weird and why aren't you like me? And that's what we do, right? At a broad level, if you talk about introverts and extroverts, okay, we all understand that. These people, the introverts over here, it's a lot of work for them to be around people, and at the end of the day, if they're gonna be recharged and rejuvenated, they need to be alone. Extroverts over here don't like being alone. That works on them, that makes them feel lonely, and they get recharged by being around people. Now, you can do this tug of war and say, why don't you spend more time alone? And the other one's saying, why aren't you more around people? Why aren't you more like me? Well, because they're different. Nobody said, I, wanna, I want the extrovert gene when they're, getting, uh, when they're born, right? It's just who you are. Now, now, can you work on being more competitive? Yeah, 100%. But you can't change your DNA, who you are. That's super helpful. Because the extrovert now can have compassion with the introvert, and the introvert can have compassion. And so it goes, right? So it's helpful to really dig into the personality type of who Jesus is. You may not like it, but it doesn't matter. Just like the extrovert may struggle with the introvert. You may not like it. Okay, it doesn't matter, but how can we get along more? How can we have more compassion versus finger pointing? Same thing with Jesus. It may be a little hard to swallow at first that he's your final judge, but the more you understand it, 
the more deeper you will grow with Jesus because he'll get you and you'll get him and you come together and, you, and you'll pray in different ways, you'll relate to different ways and hopefully it'll affect your faith and how you walk with him. So that's the goal. I know some have said, I don't like those personality tests. They label people. If you do that with it, that's not good. If you use it as a weapon to convict somebody, that's, then yeah, that, that's, that's not good. But if you use it to understand somebody, that's helpful, that's loving, that's caring. And Lord, I, I, as I pause here and just think about you and how little we really understand about you. I, I just look back at this text and see how what you said got them so upset that they want to kill you. We've never been offended by you that way, Lord. We've never had those deep positions that when you confront them were hostile to that level. And Lord, we confess that as we get to know you, that's probably going to rub against our, our deep selfish issues. It's probably going to expose some things that aren't real pleasant for us to look at about ourselves. But Lord, we know those are the deeper places of walk, the deeper places of faith, deeper places of understanding who you are. You're a mystery, Lord. Ultimately, we'll never get you. I get that. But we can ponder your deity. We can ponder judgment, what that looks like. And I just pray for that this week, for each and every one of us online, in person, small groups, no small groups, that we just really give this some thought and application in our own life and that we could grow deeper in our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. And we'll see you next week.